0: and then the other big one is cattails so cattails are like a almost like a giant grass that grows in swamps all around the globe they have that flower head that when it turns brown in midsummer looks like a a hot dog or a sausage (laughs) and yule gibbons who wrote all these cool plant field guides in the 60s called it the supermarket of the swamp because no matter what time of year there's always something edible on the the cattail, whether it's the shoots in the spring or the green flower head before it turns brown, or even the roots you can pull the starches off of and such. So,
1: You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio by Learning Herbs. I'm John Gallagher.
2: And I'm Tara Ruth. Today, our guest is Jason Knight. Jason has been teaching wilderness survival skills since 1997. He has served as a wilderness skills consultant for the Discovery Channel and has been featured on NPR. He is a co-founder of Alderleaf Wilderness College, one of the leading outdoor schools in the U.S., offering training in wilderness survival to a broad range of clients, including the U.S. Forest Service, REI, the Seattle Mountaineers, and the cast of the award-winning film Captain Fantastic. He is author of the new book, The Essential Skills of Wilderness Survival, a guide to shelter, water, fire, food, navigation, and survival kits available at his website, which is wildernesscollege.com.
0: Welcome, Jason. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me.
1: You are finally here. It is great to have you. So first of all, Jason, you, we just said you consulted for Captain Fantastic, which is one of my top favorite films of all time. And if you haven't seen it, you got to watch it, folks. So you taught all the kids in that film how to do those survival skills?
0: Yeah, they came out here and our whole staff worked with them and they spent a few days learning survival skills here on campus so that they were ready to depict them in the film.
1: Yeah, and and the film depicts this family of homeschooled kids who go on a journey and they are not raised like other kids that you've ever seen. Sort of the extreme version of wilderness survival homeschool kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so funny. And... uh yeah, that has Viggo Mortensen in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, did you did you get to train him? You know, he he came up for
0: a day. He had uh, done a lot of survival training when he was working on Lord of the Rings. And uh, oh, nice! But, and, and he's a he's a neat fellow. He he brought in a bunch of his own plants that he dug out out of his own yard to help build the set. And, and uh, <laughs> He came out in this cool old beater truck and uh, yeah, and hung out, came out around the campfire, and and uh, yeah, he he loves the outdoors just like we all do, which was great to connect.
2: Wow. wow, I love that image of him bringing all those plants he dug up from his own yard.
0: Yeah. yeah, he was super neat, and so was Matt Ross. You know, the the writer of the film. Yes, he, both of them. You know, talked to me and about how they had read all these survival books in the '80s and '90s, but had never went gone so far as to like take a class. And so, but they totally imagined like the the, the father and this family and the, the character in the film have, as being someone who has gone to those types of classes and kind of you know, raised his family off the grid in kind of this extreme, out-in-nature way.
1: That is so cool. You got to hang out with Matt Ross, too, one of my favorite actors as well. So it's awesome. Great film. But anyway, let's move on to what we'll talk about today. But it does set the stage because we're talking about survival skills. So Jason and I, folks, have been friends since 1996, right? That's right, Jason. That's over like 25 yeah. years or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, that means we were like, you know, we were, we, we were young. In our younger years, we uh, worked together for one of the first nationally-based wilderness skills schools. And it was Jason, everyone. It's Jason's fault. He was the one who first invited me to teach herbal medicine and edible plants at a college-level skills program that he actually started and designed. And it's in that roots of teaching that where learning herbs began because I turned that class that I taught for Jason into a herbal remedy kit and then when I saw Jason's new book, I really wanted to have him on the podcast because these are there's so many skills and survival skills, just simple and practical stuff that we could all use. Especially if we want to learn more about herbs. Before we talk. All about this, Jason. There are a lot of different reasons why people learn survival skills. Like some people just think of like preppers, super or super outdoorsy folks, or they might not identify with, or maybe people they see on those reality TV shows, many of which you've worked on. So, from what context and perspective are you sharing or teaching wilderness survival from?
0: Sure, so. So the context I teach from is that these are skills that all humans should have. Like all of our ancestors knew these survival skills were connected to the land. And it's something that is valuable for all of us on both the like practical life-saving skills, like people every every day, there's people getting lost in the wilderness and every year there's hundreds of people that don't make it out. And so these are practical life-saving skills that are valuable for everybody to know, whether you do backpacking or just go on day hikes, or even if you're just taking a drive and you end up on a forest service road or stranded somewhere or a plane goes down. But on the other side of that, there there are these skills that connect us to nature and enrich our lives. And they they make our experiences more exciting and and give us more confidence in our life when we're when we know the the plants and trees and and stones and animals and birds around us we feel more connected to place and we have a more fun time when we go out on those hikes and, and enjoy the outdoors so the, the, there's you know multiple layers but i think they're just fantastic skills for everybody to have and And then beyond just like the personal value of these skills, and I think it has just a huge society value, like in the sense that when you connect with nature that way, whether it's through survival skills or learning about the plants or tracking, like we gain to love and appreciate and then want to take care of the natural world on a much deeper Mm. level. So I think we all become Mm. better stewards of our environment and it helps us, you know, solve the environmental, you know, the various environmental challenges we're facing.
2: That makes me think about in your intro of your book, you talked about how when we get to know the plants, they can transform from a Mm. forest of just a wall of green to a community of survival allies. And I loved how you framed that thinking about the plants as part of this community and, you know, deepening connection with nature as part of learning survival skills. And I'm wondering just hearing you talk, if you can tell us a story about someone who saved their lives knowing some basic survival skills.
0: Yeah. I I mean... There was a, I got interviewed on, on King 5 News a couple of years back. There was a family, it was grandparents and a granddaughter flying across the state and their plane went down and crashed in the oh the North Cascades and wow. the grandparents didn't make it through but the, the teenage daughter survived and she, she didn't have formal training, but she had grown up with her father, like watching all these survival shows, but had remembered some of the advice from that. So... She stayed by the plane wreck for a few days, knowing that normally search and rescue will come and find you. It's important to survive in place so that search and rescue can find you. It's easier to find oh. stationary, someone who's you know, close to where the point last seen is you know, versus someone who could be anywhere. But mm-hmm. no one came. And so and then she remembered the next piece of survival advice that if search and rescue doesn't find you within a few days, you may need to navigate your way out. And she remembered the advice that here in North America... Yeah, especially in in these northern latitudes, like the northwest and the northeast and the the Great Lakes area, going downhill is a great advice because if you go downhill, you eventually hit a stream. You can follow uh-huh. a stream downhill till you hit a creek and follow that downhill to maybe hit a river and and generally water leads you back to civilization and so. That's what she did. It took her a couple of days, and she luckily she kept her wits about her, and she made it back down to Highway 20, where then she was able to get picked up and taken to a hospital. And so she survived because she put to use some of the you know, survival knowledge that she had picked up over her years. Wow. wow!
1: And it wasn't like you know she had taken a lot of classes or even read a book. She remembered just a few things that she mm-hmm. passed along the way.
0: Um, yeah, which which makes me think you know mm-hmm. think about how. You know, one of the most important survival skills is keeping a level head. And there's there's a great book about that that came out like 20 years ago called Deep Survival. And it's stories about how sometimes people who have a lot of outdoor experience don't make it through and sometimes people without very much at all or none make it out. And it and it has to about has to do with like keeping that panic at bay, that fear at bay, like keeping that level head, that positive mental attitude that will to survive. That's one of the most important things in survival at the beginning.
1: You know, we were talking recently, Jason, called you up when your book came out and I was love it and amazed by it. So I just, you know, we were having a chat and, you know, something we were talking about was like, you know, framing a conversation around how survival skills can help people be better herbalists because people listening to urban Radio, obviously they're interested in edible medicinal plants and a lot of people like to go out and harvest their own. So, you know, I thought it'd be really cool to put this in the context of people who are really interested in plants. So well, obviously Vigo Mortensen knows what to do, but <laughs> so how about, you know, overall, what, what, how, you know, how can knowing survival skills help us be better herbalists? Sure, sure.
0: So I think, you know, no matter what, like, part of nature you wanna study more in depth, it really is valuable to kind of be a Jack or Jill of all trades or to be a naturalist, so to speak, you know, have a, a basic knowledge in all, a lot of different areas, because it will help you understand the interconnectedness between things because you know plants don't just live in a vacuum like they're in a an environment and they have relationships with all the different other plants and animals and the soils and the how much it rains in that environment and it, so many different things and so you know being a good naturalist and i think survival skills fit into that palette of being a great naturalist but even more importantly, like if you look at, pay attention to the news, like I do for survival stories and people getting lost and I have friends in search and rescue, like every year there's more and more foragers, mushroom foragers, especially that go go missing and, and some don't make it out alive. And, and so one, I think it's not only is a skill everyone should know, but especially if you're going out into the wild and, and foraging for mushrooms and for plants and such, you want to be able to know how to take care of yourself if you got turned around and lost and had to spend the night without a tent and sleeping bag, you want to be able to take care of your shelter and water, et cetera. But also, if you want to be good at finding like the hard to find plants or the unusual plants, or you want to be a better steward and maybe not harvest from where everybody else is harvesting, but find your own patch to tend and steward and harvest from, like you want to be comfortable navigating off trail, not just going where everybody else walks. And, you know, to go off trail, you you want to you know, build your navigation skills and then have your survival skills. So if like I said, if you did get turned around, you know what to do. But oftentimes, you know, when the types of folks who take a survival class and, and learn these skills and learn navigation, like it's such great preventative medicine to having a survival situation because you'll, you'll, you won't get lost as easily. You'll have what you need with you. If you lose everything or don't have that stuff, you know how to use materials from nature to to take care of all your survival needs. So It just gives you the confidence to go into those deeper areas. Like some of the plants around here only grow in high elevations and and there's not a lot of roads or trails up into there. So you usually have to park at a trailhead and hike somewhere. And then like I said, getting off the beaten path is, is super key to finding you know, I find all kinds of unusual neat stuff because I'm, I'm off trail all the time, you know, I'm tracking animals and they just take you to places that people would never yeah. go to because it's steep or there's a thicket or a swamp to you know get across. And, but then you find these amazingly beautiful places where you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful yeah. I found this spot. Like when has a human seen this before? How long has it been?
1: Right. I remember taking a trip up to the North Cascades, a, a hiking trip and my intention was, you know, I just wanted to take a couple of days and just explore a little and, and camp. And just get away, and and up at North Cascades National Park, and not really having too much of inten- intention or of, of going, I, not at all of harvesting anything, and I didn't. But when I was way up that trail, you know, and I and I went off trail a bit because I got a little bit of experience and navigation and survival skills. I found like the first time I ever came across a giant field alpine field of mountain valerian and wow and arnica and. I mean, it was sunny out and the Valerians were flowering, and literally there were bees asleep on the flowers. You could just pick them up. Wow. <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> I was like, this really does work. Yeah. <laughs> but it was having those kinds of experiences where, like, I never like having a sense of confidence in just going off trail a little and how to get back is, you know, really helpful.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Jason, your book covers shelter, water, fire, food, navigation, and survival skills. And I'm wondering, what's the top or one of the top skills someone listening should learn first? Is is there an order to learning this information? Or does it start with an overall philosophy? Because it can seem a little overwhelming at Mm -hmm. first.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think... You know, keeping that level head is one of the primary things to start with. We we use an acronym called SPEAR, S-P-E-A-R, and it means if you find yourself in a, a, a survival situation or emergency, and this goes for getting lost in the woods or, you know, a hurricane hits your neighborhood or whatever, you know, emergency you find yourself in, but you stop what you're doing, is as, as the S in SPEAR, then P is is put together a plan, like look at what your situation is what, what you might be facing first as a difficulty or what resources you might have with you or in the landscape around you or, and, and then put together a plan. That's uh, so the piece for mm. the plan. And then the E is for execute. Like we can get your body actively engaged in making your survival situation better. Maybe it's, you know, building a shelter. When you're actively doing something, it ke- helps keep your mind at ease. And so then if you complete your, your first task, then it's the A and the R in SPEAR stand for assess and reevaluate. So then, okay, I have a shelter. What might I need next? And you put together a new plan and you get yourself engaged in making your situation better again. And so you know, and it helps you stay in place. You know, if you start like creating all these things that create a sense of home, that take care of different survival needs, then you'll be more comfortable making camp and waiting for search and rescue mm-hmm. to come and find you. So it's that, it's that mental, keeping that, that level head so you don't go down that path of panic and fear because it's it's well-documented that sometimes people go down that path of panic and fear and then they make horrible decisions that make their their situation way worse, like running at night or jumping off a cliff into raging water, oh, you know, any wow. number of, of terrible things. So keeping that level head is super important. But one of the first you know things that like if you look at a simple system, I always think of shelter, water, fire, food, and, and that kind of puts together our survival priorities. It's dictated by something we call the rule threes, which you can survive roughly three hours before hypothermia becomes dangerous. Even mm-hmm. in the summertime when it when it feels warmish at night, your body, you know, especially when you lay down to rest, when you need to sleep, you can lose lose heat very quickly. And then you can go about three days without water before dehydration can become deadly and roughly three weeks without food before starvation becomes an issue. So knowing the rule of threes creates what we call our survival priorities, which are shelter, water, fire, and food. And there's a reason why you would go through it in that order, but starting with, with shelter, the reason is because hypothermia is the biggest danger in the outdoors. More lost persons perish from hypothermia than anything else. Like you need to, your body needs to stay 98.6. If it goes too much below or above, we can get very ill and and perish quickly. So we want to create the type of shelter. If we don't have a tent and sleeping bag, we want to be able to build something from the natural materials in the environment. That's going to keep us warm through the night so that we don't, so that we don't
1: get hypothermic. Okay, so that was, again, like SPEAR, which is stop, plan, execute, assess, and reevaluate. Rule of three, three hours without a regulated body temperature then three days without water, three weeks without food. And then the hierarchy, right, which is shelter, then water, fire, then food. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's cool about your, what I really like about your book is that, you know, it just, it just you know tells you the basics of what you need to know without getting too crazy and gives you examples. So a lot of really cool examples are in here and we're gonna get to some of these, but I thought I would start before getting into something like fire making or water purification, You know, something maybe herbalists or people should carry when they go out. So if they're out there and they're like, I'm going mushroom hunting or I'm going, even just to like, you know, like like I did, just go hiking and find and explore new plants and identify them. That's a lot of fun, for, for at least for everyone listening, <laughs> people <laughs> listening, at least to this audience. I don't know about all the other podcasts, but, you know. So, you know, if you were to make a survival kit or, you know, to make sure you carry certain things in your backpack when you're out, what would you, what do you suggest?
0: Yeah, so if, if you're, you need something simple to remember, I always think of shelter, water, fire, food, like what would support me for those things? But if you want to look at a broader list, like I love the the ten essentials that the Mountaineers came up with like 50 years ago. The the modern day equivalent, I like to think of 11 systems because we've put added communication to that list. But that basically, like if you're having a, a small, like really lightweight, small, compact kit, you can take hiking. Like you can some lightweight things you can put in it that help address your your survival needs. Would be like a a mylar space blanket for, for shelter and protection from the elements a survival straw or life straw as a brand mm-hmm. it's just a simple straw that has a filter in it so you can purify water so that you're not drinking straight from a creek where you could get a, a sick, you know get ill from a microorganism multiple ways of making fire i always like carrying both a lighter and a ferro rod which is like a flint modern day flint and steel an extra protein bar for food and then as far as the, you know the those would be the core shelter water fire food but then as far as the other tend to you know, uh, other systems that are part of the, the 10 essentials or the 11 systems would would be a compass and a paper map, especially, you know, don't rely. So many people get lost because they rely on their phone and then the, the, either they get out of cell range or the battery dies or it breaks or they lose it or they forget it. So I always say, you know, have a compass, know how to use it, bring a, bring a paper map, a small personal first aid kit, some extra clothing, a flashlight or a headlamp, Some tools I like to bring a a knife and some and some rope or cordage, so to speak, kind of compact cordage. And then you know, you think about sun protection, like a hat or sunscreen. And then that eleventh system is communication. And so, you know, everyone's carrying cell phones today, which is great. But in addition to that, it can be helpful to bring an emergency whistle and a signaling mirror. Mm -hmm. There are are also two things that can help you alert rescuers of your position if you were in a a survival emergency.
1: Well, I I also know that. um... Like my daughter Haley, who you know for her birthday one year got a Garmin GPS. And, you know, that's really good if you if you're out doing a lot of hiking and going backcountry. But I love her having it because even when she's on a road trip or something, like on spring break or whatever, she can just like turn it on and and like just, you know, even if she just out of cell range like she was you know, she's like down camping in Death Valley or something this, this winter. She could ping us, you know, like mm-hmm. and the satellite thing is cool. I know that's more in the technology away from what we're talking about, but still it's kind of like one of those, you know, it it helps our mindset and
0: help us worry less. <laughs> oh yeah, certainly. Like if you're, you're if you're going backpacking or doing a big, hi, bigger hike, you know, GPS is is great to bring. I still recommend bringing the compass and map as backup because it, again, it's an electronic device that can run out of battery power or break and things like that. But yeah, nowadays, like you said, they they have these communication tools built into a lot of the GPSs, the Spot devices and beacons and things like that. And then a lot, a lot of the new iPhones are having satellite communication built into it for emergencies. So, you know, those are all great tools to have, especially if you're like leading people into the backcountry and you want to be able to contact help, you know, you're going, you know, far and out of cell service. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about shelter. You were saying that was one of the most important things to to think about in a survival situation. And I'm curious what tips you have on building the most basic, you know, kind of shelter if you're in survival or emergency situation.
0: The most basic start shelter is great to start with something called a debris hut. and It's, it's like mm. a giant nest or a giant sleeping bag, so to speak. But instead of you know synthetic materials are down, you're making it out of the material you find in the landscape. And debris is a term that simply refers to any kind of material in the landscape that will create dead air space. And so those things include things like leaves, pine needles, mosses, ferns, Cattail leaves, evergreen boughs, you know, any type of material, dead grasses that you can pile up, and in a debris hut structure. You you prop up a ridge pole, like up on a stump or a fork in a tree, or you build a tripod, and then you put these ribbing sticks down along the sides, and you make the interior just large enough to fit yourself, and then you mm. stuff the inside full of debris. You pile up debris on the outside. You can create a pile to to fill in the doorway but you, then you, you burrow into it feet first so there's plenty of debris underneath you protecting you from the cold ground and all sides. About three feet. Like if, we, if we were to crawl into a mummy sleeping bag, because <laughs> down is so efficient, that mummy sleeping bag loft only has to be like three or four inches to keep us warm right. even on really cold nights. But when you're using natural debris like leaves, it needs to be about three feet thick. So it's going to take you a few hours to build one. But that's a shelter. I've, I've been in one when the temperatures got down to single digits at night and it snowed and... I was as snug as a bug in the rug inside one of these things. But it's it's one of those things where, you know, probably the first time you do it, you you may not have a great warm night because, you know, when you're a beginner at it, you often, it's it's easy to not put enough debris on it or not get your door sealed up and things like that. But that's a great shelter. Everybody should know. It's a great one to start with because a lot of survival situations, you are oftentimes by yourself and you have to, you know, spend the night by yourself. If you're with a group, you could build a group shelter and, and think about a fire. I tend not to do fires for mm. when solo because then you have to keep it running all night and then you don't sleep much type of thing. So you,
1: you do have debris. to think of energy conservation too. So if you're like, you know, in a situation and you're hungry and there's right, you have to make that choice. What am I going to do with my energy? Collect firewood or mm-hmm. or make a debris hut, right? I mean, that's right. the kind of, of rough decisions.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I said, if you're with a group, you know, you can kind of split the task up of, of collecting firewood and maintaining a fire. But when you're by yourself, you know, debris hut's fantastic. And you know, that's uh, you're you're talking about this book. I think one thing that makes this book different is like so many survival books are like a random assortment of like hundreds of tips. And yeah, uh, you know, and I and what's different about this book is it actually presents a system of like simple steps you take to address your most important survival needs. And you know, that's what I think is most helpful to folks who who spend time in the outdoors or even if you just want to be prepared for natural disasters that come through your neighborhood. If you understand what your survival needs are and in the simple ways to address them you're much better prepared than like trying to learn like 300 different, you know, <laughs> right. knots and, and fishing techniques and how to make different kinds of spear points and stuff like that. You know, there's, there's all kinds of wilderness skills that are super fun and, and great for like those long term, you know, folks who dream about like living in the stone age for a summer or something right. like that. Right. But when it comes for everyday people, it's, it's like the, the core survival skills and, and, and a systematic way to address them is what's important.
1: And and know and and remember where you're going. Like so if you're going, you know, in into the desert, you probably have a different kind of shelter you would need to make versus in a forest with leaves, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. that too. So we go from shelter to water. And so I know you mentioned like a life straw, but if I don't have my life straw, what is like one of the most simplest things people can remember for water purification or 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 even just like what not to drink and what to drink and things like that.
0: Yeah, so, so most water sources are contaminated by some form of microorganisms, whether it be bacteria, viruses, protozoa. So you generally are, the thing in wilderness survival situations, you don't want to make it worse by making yourself really ill. So you want to be able to have clean water to drink, which oftentimes means purifying it. And so there's a, a couple different ways. If you're in an environment that has any level of humidity, in the morning you have dew that forms on grasses and leaves. And you'd be amazed at how fast you can sop up water we have the t-shirt or a sponge and squeeze it into a container and, and have a whole bunch of water and it. it's clean water because it's evaporated. As long as you're not collecting it off of poisonous plants or scooping mm-hmm. up some oh. herb droppings or something like that. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. But there's also a lot of environments where you know you, you don't get a real dewy morning. And so the most effective primitive means of purifying water is boiling it. And so that's why I advocate when you when you make a survival kit, it's like pack these small items into a metal. Cup or a, or a metal pot, because then you can use that to scoop up the water from a stream and put it over a fire and, and boil it. Because having a container is super handy. I mean, mm-hmm. but in the book we talk about you know what we do if you had nothing, because so many survival situations, most of them are because people didn't expect to be in it. You know, their, their plane went down, their car got stuck, they they thought they were just off for a quick day hike or run and didn't have any equipment with them. So it's important to know what to do if you don't have any. And so. If you're trying to purify water and you're out in the wilderness with nothing, just the clothes on your back, you're going to be making a container. And so in the book, we talk about how you know, how to burn out a piece of wood to have a, a vessel, a container that holds water, and then heat up rocks in the fire so that you can then put them into the water and boil it. And that's the you know, so it's what the CDC will tell you. Even a natural disaster, if they're worried about, say, an earthquake causing the municipal water source to get compromised, they'll just tell everybody, hey, we're on a boil water order, boil your water on your stove before you drink it. <music>
1: You know, Tara. Yes. I want to tell a little story connected to what Jason's been talking about. So I started working with the mentor of Jason and myself, John Young, uh, who you can actually listen to in previous episodes of uh, Herb Mentor Radio. And, you know, he started a wilderness school, skills school, and when I started working with them originally in the early 90s, we were able to take a week-long class with his mentor because John is often known as the first student of Tom Brown Jr., who was really one of the early people to write a lot of books on survival skills out there. And, you know, when I'd taken that class and learned about, you know, these drill fires and debris huts, all these things. And they're talking about all the plants and trees you use. And then so if you were in that situation, what would you be thinking? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, like, I'd want to well, learn more about those plants.
1: Those plants and trees, exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, I didn't grow up with parents that were outdoors people. I mean, I I, I played in the outdoors. I went outside and, and 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 played in the woods all the time. I had these great woods near my house, but I didn't, you know, have anybody teaching me or knew anything about like the names of any of the plants other than poison ivy, which I had a great relationship with. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a lot of poison ivy, but I didn't know about jewelweed when I was younger, which I wish somebody had told me about. But mm-hmm. um, So, you know, one of the first things I'm thinking to myself is I have to learn these plants and trees. I mean, I had a, a notebook with lists of what tree is good for food and shelter and all these things. And I'm like, I don't know how to tell this tree from that tree and that plant from that plant. And so John Young came up with a way to teach people that because it had to be done longer term, right? You can't just sit there and in a, in a workshop and walk out with your head completely you know, knowledgeable about everything that grows in your area. It takes time. And so he came up with a... A naturalist training program, a home study program. Now, this course is no longer available. It was around a while ago, but I helped him turn that, you know, and, and, and produce that. And that's really where I got the skills to create learning herbs and herb and all of these things. But to learn the trees and the plants, yeah, I went through that program. And then I used, you know, used that to learn everything that grew around me. Now had a really cool system. So when we started Herb Mentor, early on, I said we have to replicate that part of the program. So we did. So I, I replicated the system in which John Young came up with to learn about trees in your plants of your area, and along with Rosalie De La Forêt, we created a course called Learning Your Plants. Mm-hmm. And herb mentor, and you've seen it, right?
2: I sure have. It's a great one.
1: And so that I'm just letting everyone know that if you're thinking to yourself listening to Jason, like, oh, how do I learn all the trees in my area, the plants of your area? Like, he's like, yeah, you can go outside and point, and you know, like we have on herb mentor as well. You can tap a tap something on herb mentor, and it can identify the plant that's right in front of you. But that's not quite the same. It takes a little while. It takes time to really go out and and what's cool about learning your plants, right, is a learning plant families. So Tara, you know a little bit about plant families. How did you learn about that? Like like what what is the benefit of knowing the plant families?
2: Yeah, for me, I think what really helped me with learning the plant families was starting to recognize patterns and then to see if something for example, the mint family, I was like, okay, a lot of these plants, you know, they have a square stem and then I was just start starting to to notice these little details of plants around me that all had square stems. And sure enough, they were in the mint family. And they then they all had certain characteristics that they shared as well about their medicinal properties. And it was just a really helpful way to, to have a system, a systematic approach to learning about plants rather than just trying to learn each individual one and right. getting caught up in the sea of green.
1: Yes, yes. Because if you know a lot of things you can do with an evergreen tree or a pine tree or mint family plants, you're gonna find a lot of these in different environments. So if I'm in the Northwest or I'm on the East Coast, very different plants, but you know the patterns from the plant families. You go, okay, well that's in the mint family. I, I may be able to use it for this or that, right? And so learning your plants, that course, Teaches from that perspective well. There's kind of a couple things going on. One, you can learn all you can. You can make master lists and learn about all the different plants of your area, and journal them and really internalize them. But at the same time, you're using a book called Botany in a Day by Tom Alpel as the only real book we suggest you get in that, and which helps you learn all those patterns. And you know, now I feel much more confident about you know what plants or trees might be helpful for all these different things. So yeah. Oh yeah, Herb Mentor. Where can, uh, where can folks learn about Herb Mentor, Tara? <laughs> yeah,
2: well, they can maybe get a little discount on Herb Mentor mm. by going to HerbMentorRadio.com.
1: Yes, please go there. And um, I think we should uh, get back to Jason. I just thought that would help everyone that they might've been thinking that, you know, as they're going along. and can help your survival skills. And you learn this stuff slowly, right? A little <laughs> bit over time.
2: Yeah, you can take it plant family by plant family and it's it like you're saying it just really builds and it it can be very overwhelming at first, but it I promise you it's super rewarding over time to just see your knowledge build and build on this foundation.
1: Absolutely. Speaking of which, let's get back to Jason.
2: And hearing you talk about fire here, I'm curious, you mentioned a few, you know, things to pack in a survival kit for creating fire. But if someone doesn't have their survival kit with them, how would you recommend the simplest way to make a fire?
0: Right. So so if you don't have any equipment, you're oftentimes making fire from friction, which basically means rubbing two sticks together. And there's all kinds of different friction fire techniques from Fire plows to fire saws to hand drills and then to the bow drill. And the bow drill is the least difficult one to learn. I've had kindergartners make bow drill fires, I've had grandparents make bow drill I've fires. I've actually made one once. Yes. So, you know, like,
1: <laughs> I can do it. Anyone can do it. Everybody can do <laughs> bow drill. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. So it's a, it's a, you, know, you you harvest your dead pieces of branches of wood from like a a density what we call medium density. Like you can take any stick that you find and carve into the wood and, and jam your thumb thumbnail into it. If it's it's so hard you can't if the wood is so hard you can't make a mark with your thumbnail it's too dense. And if it's uh, so like rotten and soft that you can just crush down the wood like like styrofoam or something it's too soft. But if with a with you know with all your pressure on there if you can make just a little mark it's about the right density. And as long as it's dry and at that medium density, you can you can carve out the pieces. And you have a fireboard and a and a spindle or a drill and a handhold, and then a, a bow, which is like about arm's length with a with a string. And you, in a survival situation, you use your shoelace or a rootlet from a tree. But yeah, the the basically you're you're creating friction between the pieces of wood by spinning it against each other, and that heats up over 800 degrees and and turns a coal. And you put that ember into your what you call a tinder bundle, which is like shredded dry bark and grasses and dead flower heads—you know, very flammable stuff—and you blow on that ember, and it eventually ignites that tinder bundle into flame. You put that into your fire structure, like I like building a teepee, where you have small your smallest piece of the wood on the inside, and
1: you build build it out to larger pieces. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so so bow drill is is how you do it if you don't have any equipment with you at all, is friction.
1: And I and I suggest like you know if you're going out. You know, going out, herbalist going out in the field, definitely have a couple of of fire making sources. Whether it's some really good matches and a in a ziploc or you know lighter or two, but um, but if you want to venture and think you want to do bow drill, I, it, you know, it's a muscle memory thing. So it's a good idea to play around and practice. You know, because when you get it, you get it right. Absolutely. But it takes a little while to, and you know, one of the hardest parts for me was blowing the coal into the Tinder bundle, like, like mm-hmm. knowing how to do the Tinder bundle, right? Mm-hmm. And then that then helps you understand how building fires works in general, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. Um, yeah. Which is, which is, so if, yeah, that's, it's a good one to, to practice a bit. And so even if you're doing the lighter or the matches, it's good to practice, you know, the Tinder bundle and
0: yeah, I think you know fire skills is so key. The reason why it's, we talked about the order of being shelter, water, fire, food is you know the biggest danger is hypothermia. The second biggest danger is dehydration. Last on the list is food. That's the last thing you need to worry about. But fire sometimes is, is definitely above food, and it, and it can be first on your list or second on your list because sometimes you need fire to make a warm and dry enough shelter, or to dry out your wet clothes, or sometimes you need fire to. Purify your water if you're using rock boiling, and and then fire can do so many other things. It can help signal rescuers. It can help keep you calm. It creates a sense of place with your camp. And fire creates illumination at night. There's so many wild edibles that are not edible until you cook them. So it's one of the most multi-use skills or tools we have at our disposal. And and I, I completely agree. Like oh, I don't. I don't smoke, but I carry a lighter in my pocket all the time. And then even my little folding knife that I keep in my pocket inside the handle is a ferro Mm -hmm. rod, which is like a modern day flint and steel. It works a lot better. So no matter, even if I don't have a backpack on me, in my pocket, I always have two different ways of making fire at all times. And of course, stormproof matches can be great. And there's all kinds of other fire making tools out there. But yeah, that's one of the things that belongs in every survival kit. Like You should have a survival kit you take hiking that you should have a kit in your car a kit you keep at home in case there's a natural disaster and all those kits should have multiple ways of making fire.
1: Well you mentioned food. So let's talk about food, wild edibles. Um, sure. Of course that you know depends on how long you're out there and it is further down on the list but you also need energy. So of course every forest is different but just what do you what do you recommend? Right. To know?
0: So so this is definitely one of those areas where you know, the more you know, the, the better, and and that's why becoming a a naturalist or becoming an herbalist or being a forager, you'll just get more and more tools at your disposal if you ever needed to call upon those. But when someone doesn't have any plant skills, like a great place to start is is what we call like the big four, and so one of them is cambium of conifer trees. This goes for like pine trees, fir trees, spruce trees, hmm. the inner layer of the living layer of a tree, like. Inside the outer bark is that part of the tree that transports nutrients up and down, the the sap, the fluids, and, uh, and it's before you get to the wood, which is in the center, which is also dead. So that that little layer, called the cambium layer, is a, is a really rich food. It's what bears eat in the spring before there's anything else to eat because it has so much nutrient in it, sugars, starches, minerals that's a survival food that's available to you almost everywhere. And especially I, th- I like to think about in winter when there's snow on the ground and you don't see any plants anywhere, all, all you might have available to you is, is these these conifer trees, these pine trees. And so mm-hmm. you can take off that dead outer layer and scrape off that, that inner layer. It's like this gelatinous kind of sticky material. Sometimes it comes off in like papery sheets. You can, you can try different trees. You know, when they get bigger, they tend to get more bitter. And there's certain trees when they're about four or five inches in diameter, they, they're more sweet. And uh, you can eat it raw, but it tastes better if, if you boil it or fry it in a frying pan. Like you can make chips, like you can s- slice yeah. it off and, and, and fry it in a frying pan, put some salt on it and make these survival chips. Or you can cut it up in thin strips and make like a pasta type of thing. It has more of that, that piney, minty flavor to it. But that's one survival food. Another one would be grasses. So everywhere you go in the world, there's always going to be grasses. Now, the green leafy parts above ground, they're too fibrous to digest, so you don't want to be eating those. You could chew on them, swallow the juices, and spit out the fibers. Same Mm. problem with the roots. They're too fibrous. But right at ground level, where you have the transition between the green leaves and the roots below ground, there's a little section called the corm, C-O-R-M. And that's like a little tiny starchy potato. You can eat them raw, or you can cook them. And obviously on larger grasses, there, it's a bigger, like a reed canary grass. It's a, it's a big invasive grass around here. The corn is a little bit bigger. But anywhere you go, that's again, that's a survival food that will give you some calories because berries are, are sweet and tasty, but greens are, you know, you can have, there's so many wild greens, but so many of those things don't have many calories in them. And so you need to get something that has calories, which is why you go after, say, the cambium or the corm. Another big one is acorns. A lot of places in the world have oaks, and those, those nuts, the acorn, the nut inside the acorn is really high in protein and, and fats and calories, but you do need to leach those overnight in a stream or boil them in two changes of water, but mm-hmm. then you have a, a high-protein survival food. And then the other big one is cattails. So cattails are like a almost like a giant grass that grows in swamps all around the globe. They have that flower head that when it turns brown in midsummer, it looks like a, a hot dog or a sausage, <laughs> and... Yule Gibbons, who wrote all these cool plant field guides in the 60s, called it the supermarket of the swamp. Because no matter what time of year, there's always something edible on the, the cattail, whether it's the, the shoots in the spring or the green flower head before it turns brown, or even the roots you can pull the starches off of and such. So those are kind of the big four where if you're just getting started with plants, those are good four to learn learn how to identify and
1: work with. Mm. Mm. I remember when I was teaching with your with your class, we would. Spend a day making a giant wild edibles feast, and we would get cattails and nettles and dandelions and you yeah, know just like a yeah. ed- flower like it was spring, you know, like so we had so many things that we could get, and we would make this. You know, great stir fry with dandelion roots and you know everything. So, so it would be like a group of twenty, thirty people, and we would just spend the day putting it all together and have lunch at the end of the day. So that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it's it's awesome. Like I said, you can go three weeks before starvation becomes a problem, but certainly it's nicer to have food sooner to keep that blood sugar level up to keep that level head to not go down that path of panic and they just to make our experience that much more enjoyable and if you are in the situation where you do have to survive for longer like the longer your survival situation lasts the more important food becomes Mm -hmm. you know if you ever see that show alone you'll see like after 50, 60, 70 days those folks have lost so much weight that some Mm -hmm. of them are being medically canceled from the show because they've gotten to a danger zone where they could do permanent organ damage and uh and so for those people the, the people who win that show are typically those that are skilled enough to get enough food to keep their body weight up. And and like if you read that book Into the Wild, you know, the the author who wrote that incorrectly, you know, theorized that he died from misidentifying plants when you look mm-hmm. at Samuel Thayer who's written some of the best Wild edible guides. He, he dis disbunks that debunks mm-hmm. that myth. He actually just died from starvation. Like he was not misidentifying. He was eating yeah. these plants that are are wild edibles. Are perfectly fine to eat. They just weren't providing him with enough calories and not the right calories. So he just lost more and more and more weight till he couldn't like get up in the morning and take care of mm-hmm. himself.
1: Do you, do you want me? I don't know if I ever told you this, Jason, but let's see. We met in oh, I want to say ninety six. I think mm-hmm. so. In at that. Wilderness school in 92, we did this summer tour and we went, and part of it, we went to Alaska and um, we were in camping. It turns out, because I I didn't realize this till later when I looked it up after I saw the Into the Wild movie, but we were literally camping pretty close to where he was, right across the river. So at that exact moment in time, so while that was going on and he was starving we were across the river and up a little bit with the wilderness school wow oh. <laughs> i know i know i was like that's oh my god we were right there um, yeah. you know like yeah. that was crazy yeah. yeah but yeah that is an interesting one to watch for sure or read
0: <laughs> yeah and the, the other thing that, that that that's crazy coincidence i mean The other thing that reminds me is if you know if you're surviving in place and search and rescue hasn't found you in a few days or a week, like most searches are even called off after a week, like they'll stop Mm -hmm. searching for you. And so, in that situation, then you need to start thinking about okay, how am I going to then navigate my way out and like bring some of the things I'm making to help with my survival needs so I can kind of survive on the move and make my way back out to civilization. Like there's a super sad story of a a lady who was hiking the Appalachian Trail and she had stepped off the trail in Maine to relieve herself and then got turned around. And she remembered the survival advice that like you're supposed to survive in place and search and rescue will come and find you. And she mm-hmm. was, you know, she had all her camping gear. So she just set up her tent and stuff and And they know all about it because she kept a journal. So she's, she was only like a, a mile or two off the trail and they searched for her, but they assumed she'd be along the trail. So they're only searching within like half a mile of the trail or something like that. And they never, they never found her until two years later, someone yeah. discovered her. And she had just st- stayed in place for like at least two months, maybe three and kept the journal, well, but then eventually, you know, died from, passed away from starvation. And it and it's really sad because she didn't know that, that, that piece of knowledge that you're, you need to find your way out if no one comes and gets you within seven days.
2: Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that search and rescue calls off after a week. That's really helpful to know.
0: hmm mm-hmm.
2: Wow. And hearing you talk about, you know, how it's important to then start navigating and and moving hopefully towards civilization, can you talk a little bit about tips for not getting lost and what to do if you are lost with navigation? Yeah, so
0: I would say so everyone should, you know, grab a compass and and learn how to read, use the compass and read topographic maps, you know, get out to a class like REI has a little free compass classes everywhere. Like it's just a super helpful thing. You can pick up a book or do something online as well. And we've got some navigation information in the book as well. And uh, it's always important to like plan for weather that's worse than what you expect. And, and if you, can what you want to do is you want to tell someone where you're going, when you plan to be back out. That way, if you don't come back out, somebody will know to call search and rescue and be able to tell them, Oh, they they were hiking on this trail. Their car should be here. You know, so they'll have a point last seen and they'll be able to search, will be able to go to the right place. If you can hike with not just one friend, but two is ideal. That way, if somebody gets a very serious injury, you have one person who can perform first aid while the third person goes out for help. And, uh, the other thing is, is no matter what region you're going to go explore and spend time in, know what are some of those landmarks or, or handrails, or they like to call them in knolls. So, for example, around here in the Northwest, we're lucky to, that if you get up on a high point, you can usually see Mount Rainier or Mount Baker. And that way, if you were like hiking around in the woods back here and you got turned around, if you could get to a high spot and point out one of those landmarks, then you know where the four directions are. And like for me, for example, I know if, if I get lost out in the woods here, if I go north... If I can find my four directions and know which way is north, if I just go north, I'll eventually hit the Skycomish River, which is either going to have a road mm. along it, or I can follow it downstream to where you get back to civilization. And so, like knowing what are your your major landforms in your area, whether they be rivers or ridges or prominent mountains, and then know what your like your plan B, C, or Z is as far as if you got turned around. Like I was saying, for me, it's like just hike north, and you'll you'll find your way out. And for every wilderness I were to go into, I'd be like, okay, if I got completely turned around. Of the four directions, which one is going to be my shortest distance back to civilization? And so it's good to have those backup plans in place. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, like aidless navigation techniques you can use. You know, if you're going off trail, you can hang flagging every 50 yards or 100 yards so you can follow that flagging back to the trail. You can, you know, if you're trying to navigate without circling, because we're all left or right-handed and over long distances, especially on flatter territory or forested we tend to curve to the left or the right based on which which side is dominant. So you can stay going in a straight line by picking landmarks that align up in front of you in alignment with each other, whether it be two trees or two hilltops, and keep choosing landmarks that are in alignment with the direction you're trying to go. Because there's these, there's horror stories of people getting lost, and, and they might walk all day or multiple days and then end up in the same place they started because they curved and circled mm. back around. So oh, wow. Yeah. The things like sightlining trailblazing is hanging the flags, memorizing your landmarks. So that way, even if you didn't have a map, you know, you've know memorized some landmarks, like using the sun and the stars to help you navigate. Like we all know the sun rises in an easterly direction and midday it's in a southerly direction and it sets in a westerly direction. So if we can locate the, the sun in the sky, we can also get a rough sense of our four directions. Same at night. If we have a clear sky, if you can find the Big Dipper, you, fall, you take the two stars that form the pouring edge, and you that distance between those mm-hmm. two stars that form the pouring edge, if you go four and a half times up from that, it you get to the north star. And if you can find the north star, you also know your four directions. So those things help as well. So there's a whole bunch of stuff like that in the book that mm-hmm.
1: navigating. And you know something that you just said a moment ago too, totally forgot to mention, which was, you know, if, if you need you know, help or you get in, in first aid situation or you get a cut or whatever... To you know, know how to use the plants around you medicinally, so poultices and you know teas to make compresses, and just have a general idea what plants might have anti-infection properties, or you know things like that, so you could wash off a wound or something so it doesn't get infected, and you know that's a, another. You know, key thing to know as well, because you may know like plantain, for example, but plantain is probably not regrowing back in the woods or far off into the wilderness. So, knowing some other options and things is good.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's like you know, we have this survival kits list in the book where we talk about you know how to what to bring for your ten essentials, your eleven or your eleven systems, so to speak. But then also, what are your what are your natural alternatives? And and certainly knowing some of your medicinal plants can come in super handy if you don't have a first aid kit. But it's like you know, it reminds me of survival skills. One of these things, I can't believe they don't teach at least the basics in school. It's like one of those skills I said every human should have, just like first aid. I can't believe they don't teach first aid in school too. It's like, it's one thing, it's great to have a first aid kit, but even more importantly is to know how to use it. Like I've taken all the training (laughs) on on basic first aid, know how to put that to use. And then even better is like, well, what are the replacements for your neosporin if you have to make that from what you find in the woods, you know, if you don't have Mm
1: -hmm. it. And speaking of which, like knowing hazards, right? As you're going out, like where you might be going, like, you know, what, are there any snakes or things like that, or just knowing how to, right? I mean, there's knowing the hazards of the area as well.
0: Absolutely. It's one of the first things, like if I'm going into a new region to, whether it's take my family for a, a hike or a, go camping or, or teach a class or something, anytime I'm going to a new region, that's one of the first things you look at are like, what are the dangerous things in that area? You know, poisonous spiders, poisonous snakes, poisonous plants, plants that would give you a rash, dangerous wildlife, weather conditions, you know, flash floods, you know, whatever it might be. Every region's got its own hazards, and there, it's fantastic to orient yourself with that first and get that out of the way. So those those things, you know, you've got covered, and you know what to, how to handle those situations.
1: So, Jason, you know, you created one of the very first year long wilderness college levels the programs, like nine month program, and um, you know, many have followed you over the years, but you're definitely definitely the OG and all that. So I know you haven't been doing that particular program anymore. But are you still teaching live classes?
0: Yes, actually we're we're actually busy I'm busier than ever with with classes. You know, what's we have tons of weekend classes that are open to the public on survival skills, on wildlife tracking skills, on mushroom foraging. And so if you go to wildernesscollege.com, you'll see we have classes almost every weekend throughout the spring, summer, and, and fall, and then we do custom classes for groups. I do presentations for different groups, and then after popular demand, one of the things we were things that was. The most requested thing for our, from us for years was putting our survival training into an online format. So we have an online survival Ooh. course that's been incredibly pro- popular over the last five years. And, uh, and, and so we've got a lot of things that, that keep us very busy with you know helping people gain these skills and, uh, and helping people be able to share them with others as well.
1: And of course, the course... You can, everyone can go to wildernesscollege.com for the course, Jason's live classes, presentations, has them all there. Definitely, you have a cool free thing you can get on your list and get a really cool free guide. But where is where do you think is the best place? Where would you like people to go to pick up the essential skills of wilderness survival?
0: You can go to wildernesscollege.com and mm-hmm. and what's what's cool if you get it from us, not only do we have the best price on it, but then you can get our cool bonuses. So we have the survival kit checklist that I use with my own family and our instructors. So you can download that. And then we have a little survival webinar and some other mm-hmm. cool bonuses there that go along with the book. And then then once you, you'll then be able to find out about what we have coming up in the future as well. Excellent.
2: Great. Well, Jason, this has just been so fun and so informative, and I'm really grateful for you joining us yep. today. And yeah, thank you for joining us on Ermenta Radio.
1: Thanks, Jason.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Oh, one more thing, Tara. Oh, yeah. How about we play an herb note?
2: Let's do it. Welcome to Herb Notes. I'm Tara Ruth from Learning Herbs. Growing out of sidewalk cracks and wild meadows alike, Dandelion, Taraxacum officinale, is a persistent plant that can teach us a whole lot about resilience and adaptability. While it may be despised by lawn purists, herbalists recognize that dandelion isn't a pesky weed. Rather, dandelion is an important plant with so many healing gifts. Let's dive into three benefits of dandelion. 1. Dandelion has a long history of use as an herb for supporting liver health. Since the liver performs so many different functions in the body, gently supporting the liver with dandelion root can help address a wide range of mild ailments associated with liver stagnation. Some of these mild issues can include, but aren't limited to, constipation, acne, minor rashes, and dry eyes. 2. Both dandelion roots and dandelion leaves make for a fantastic digestive tonic. Dandelion roots and leaves are both bitter, and the bitter flavor helps release digestive secretions throughout our GI tracts, and these in turn help us break down our foods more efficiently. So sipping on a cup of roasted dandelion root tea, which by the way, tastes so good with just a little bit of coconut milk and honey, or adding some dandelion greens to your meals like in a salad or stir fry, is a great way to support healthy digestion. Dandelion roots are also high in inulin, a prebiotic that helps feed the gut microbiome and support overall digestive health. Three, in addition to having roots with a high inulin content, dandelions young spring leaves are also deeply nutritious. The fresh bitter leaves are high in vital minerals like calcium, phosphorus, and potassium. I like adding fresh dandelion greens to a salad, stir fry, or a pesto. I love picking dandelion leaves from my backyard and I always make sure I'm sourcing them from a place that hasn't been sprayed with pesticides. And in addition to harvesting them, I've also been able to find them at many grocery stores near me, so they might be in your favorite grocery store too. To recap, here are three ways that you can use dandelion. 1. You can work with dandelion roots to support liver health. 2. You can sip on dandelion root tea and cook with dandelion leaf to support healthy digestion. 3. You can incorporate dandelion roots and leaves into your cooking for their nutrient-dense benefits. Okay, and I couldn't help but include a fourth benefit that you probably already know about. Making a wish and blowing on a dandelion that's gone to seed will definitely make all of your dreams come true. Want to learn more about dandelion's benefits? You can visit herbnotes.cards to grab a free deck of our top 12 herb notes. You'll learn all about common herbs like catnip, yarrow, echinacea, cinnamon, and more. This has been Herb Notes with me, Tara Ruth. Catch you next time.
1: Herb Mentor Radio and Herb Notes are 100% sustainably wildcrafted podcasts, written, performed, and produced by Tara Ruth and me, John Gallagher. Sound engineering by Zach Frank. Visit HerbMentorRadio.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and to find out how you can be part of Herb Mentor, which is a website that you must see to believe. Herb Mentor Radio is a production of LearningHerbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you very, very, very much for listening.